thank you, Ralph, for your prayer and for reading. Um, all right, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mark, um, and I am going to be continuing our uh, summer sermon series uh, through the books of First and Second Samuel here this morning. And uh, as we've been exploring these books, we've been uh, exploring the life and character of King David specifically. And as we've been going through um, and exploring the life of King David, we've been asking the question, what makes David so special? Right? What made God describe this particular man as a man after his own heart? Right? After all, um, as we've seen and will continue to see, uh, David was a complex and deeply flawed person, just like the rest of us. And yet, um, I'm not sure that any of us would dare to call ourselves uh, after God's own heart. Um, and so what is it that sets him apart? What is it that makes him different? Um, well, in today's passage, we get yet another glimpse into how David thought and acted that made him so special. Um, and before diving in, first, it's important to note that uh, although we are picking up chronologically right where we left off last week uh, with uh, Pastor Paul having preached from 1 Samuel 28 uh, with Saul visiting the witch at Endor and summoning the ghost of Samuel and Samuel telling him that by this time tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Um, that's, that's where we're going to pick up our story here, but we've actually jumped ahead two chapters. This is chapter 31 that we're starting in, and in the intervening two chapters, uh, the author of Samuel has yet again highlighted uh, the faithfulness of David in his uh, waiting on the Lord and his um, commitment to following the word of the Lord and his enjoyment of yet another victory at the, uh, with the Lord on his side. Um, and that increasingly, as we get towards the end of the book of 1 Samuel, uh, these juxtapositions between Saul and David, between the faithful king and the faithless king, uh, between the king who has God on his side and the king who does not, uh, these juxtapositions are becoming more and more stark. Um, but that is indeed the point that the author is trying to drive home. Um, and so, uh, we're going to see here, now that the author has the difficult task of bringing Saul's story to a close, um, he doesn't seem to take any pleasure in it. Uh, he seems to take the position of the righteous characters in this story in that they view Saul's demise as a tragedy. And so he tells the story quickly, and he spares us many of the gory details, and yet we're still left with this dark, bloody, and tragic account. Now, as I said last week, Pastor Paul preached on Saul's visit to the witch at Endor, and in that sermon, he, he outlined a sort of the psycho-spiritual profile of Saul as a faithless man. Um, and he said that, you know, because Saul had rejected God so many times, God finally had rejected Saul. And so Saul had no longer any hope in life. 
And this manifested itself, this faithlessness, this um, lack of fear in the Lord, uh, manifested itself in an overmastering fear of death and in a complete desperation and in, ultimately in his lostness. You know, Samuel says there, basically, there's nothing left for you but to die. And so as we turn to this chapter 31, and it's this, this dark and bloody and tragic account of Saul's death, it's much more than that as well. The, if, if we look closely, we'll see that the author is also highlighting how all these people around Saul are so much more faithful than he is, um, many of whom are just background characters. And so the author here is actually shining a light on what the faithful men and women look and think like. So if chapter uh, 28, we could say, gave us the profile of uh, the faithless man, then chapter 31 surprisingly provides us with a profile of a faithful person. So truly faithful men and women, firstly, also fear, um, which is surprising, right? They're also driven by a certain type of fear. But unlike Saul, who is driven by this overmastering fear of death and of losing his life, faithful people fear the right thing. Faithful men and women fear the Lord. And this fear manifests itself in at least four things that we can draw from this text. Um, and they would be uh, that fear of the Lord manifests itself in steadfastness, in courage, in a jealousy for the Lord's honor, and in patient trust. So those are, those are the four things we're going to kind of look at as we pick through this text. All right, and so last week... We saw Saul come unhinged, right? He's so filled with terror at the thought of death that he's willing to do absolutely anything. And he's willing to compromise the well-being of absolutely anyone around him in order to preserve his own earthly life. All of Saul's words and all of Saul's deeds profess that he fears death more than he fears God. Meanwhile, his foil, David, right, has been on the run from Saul all this time, and he's been penning the words of some of these psalms along the way. Psalms like Psalm 56, where he says this, This I know that God is for me, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? That is the voice of one who fears the Lord in their time of trial. Um, and our first glimpse of this in our text is actually uh, a little more implicit than it is explicit, but I think you'll agree that it certainly is there. And in, in this first example that we see of this manifestation of the fear of the Lord is in the steadfastness of Jonathan. All right, we see in 1 Samuel 31, verse 1, right at the beginning, the, the author basically comes up, he just gives us a summary of the details of what happened. Uh, he just hits us with it real quick. He says, now the, the Philistines were fighting against Israel and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, and, and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. Now we know almost nothing about Saul's other sons, but we do know a fair bit about Jonathan, don't we? We've already spoken about him in the sermon series. 
uh, Heath outlined a number of things about Jonathan and about his relationship to David. We know that he's already acknowledged the forfeiture of the throne of Israel to David. And consider what that would have meant for him. Right? You don't just hand the throne over to another family. Jonathan is the blood heir to the throne. Which means he must die in order for it to be transferred to David. And Jonathan isn't stupid. He's well aware of this. And so back in chapter 20, when he and David swear their oath together, it's for the, project, the protection of his offspring, not for himself. Um, he knew that for David to take the throne that the Lord was giving him necessarily required his death. And he was going to fulfill his part with honor. And so it is that we find him at Saul's side on Mount Gilboa, steadfast till the end, serving in the place where God had him, defending the king so long as the Lord would enable him to do so. And to a faithless onlooker, this may look like foolishness. This may look like a waste of a life. But scripture tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and that the Lord uses the things that this world deems foolish to bring shame to those who are wise in their own eyes. And Jonathan is no fool. He just sees the whole picture. He feared the Lord far more than he feared death. And so the promise of the reward for his steadfastness far outshone the allure of self-protection. And so this fear of the Lord in Jonathan manifested itself in this steadfastness to the bitter end. And the same is true of our next character in the text. We see Saul's armor bearer who displays uh, a courage that cannot be explained apart from a fear of the Lord. Um, and so we see in verses 3, uh, the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Like Jonathan, Saul's armor-bearer feared God more than he feared death. And he refused to strike down the Lord's anointed, even when all seemed lost. And now consider the fact that um, being the king's armor-bearer was likely not the sort of job that little Israelite boys and girls aspired to growing up. Um, it was not a particularly desirable job. You had to lug all of the king's heavy stuff for him all over the battlefield when he didn't feel like wearing it. Um, and you were unable to properly defend yourself because you're too busy handing him the things that he needs and trying to keep him safe throughout the whole battle. Um, and so if war were the game of golf, then the armor bearer is like the caddy but not like a pro caddy. It's more like one of the rent-a-kid caddies at the local club. Um, so they're the most disposable members of the military. So now imagine the temptation for this armor bearer. The whole army has been slaughtered. It's just him and the king left, and the king is mortally wounded. He probably could easily have saved himself, 
He probably could have just finished Saul off and ran away and lived a long life in anonymity somewhere. But he couldn't do it. Or he wouldn't do it, rather. And why? Because, as our text says, he feared greatly. He feared the Lord, and he knew that it was his sworn duty to defend the king's life at all costs. And so if Saul wanted a way out, he was going to have to do it himself. And that's exactly what Saul does. And when the armor bearer sees that Saul is dead, he falls on his own sword as well. Now this last point does kind of complicate things for us, and I'm not really sure what to do with that, because here we have a man who fears the Lord greatly, uh, so much so that he defies a direct order from the king. Um, but now that same fear leads him to take his own life. And traditionally, Christians have held to a doctrine of uh, the sanctity of life in which we don't have the right to take any life, including our own. Um, but this armor bearer, he clearly believed that it was his duty to share Saul's fate. And given what the text says about his motivations, I think we can infer uh, from the fact that he showed such little attachment to his earthly life, that this was because he trusted in God to vindicate him one way or another for courageously fulfilling his vows, rightly or wrongly. And so inexplicable courage in the face of trials and temptations are another manifestation of the fear of the Lord in faithful men and women. Which brings us to our third manifestation, which is righteous jealousy over the Lord's honor. And we see this uh, clearly displayed in the valiant men of Jabesh Gilead. See, when the Philistines had found Saul's body and the, and the bodies of his sons, uh, predictably, they cut off Saul's head and they sent it away to the temple of Ashtaroth as a tribute to their gods. Because in the ancient Near East, uh, people believed that war was always decided by the gods. And in this case, at least they believed their god had won. And so they were going to have their moment to gloat about it. And one of the Israelite cities that they had uh, taken over in this course of this battle and have now occupied was a strategic fortress city called Beshan. And they decide to take the bodies, the headless body of Saul and his, and his sons, to this city of Bethshem, and in a gruesome act of celebration to their gods, they pin Saul and his three sons' bodies to the outer walls of the city for all to see. But then we read in verse 11, But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. They came to Jabesh and buried, burned them there, and they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So understand this. Israel has just suffered a crushing defeat. And these people from Jabesh Gilead uh, are far enough away from the action that they've, they've come away from this unscathed. But they have no means of protecting themselves if they get in, in, caught now involving themselves in this situation. 
right? Jabesh Gilead was about 10 and a half miles away from Beth Shan. And so they could very well have just let sleeping dogs lie and stayed off the, the Philistines' radar entirely, at least for now. But when they heard that the God of Israel was being mocked by having his headless former king and his family hung on the walls of Beth Shan, they couldn't stand for it. So they march all through the night. They sneak up the embankments to the city walls and they pull down all four bodies and they carry them all the way back to Jabesh to properly dispose of them. Now this was a 21 mile round trip on foot with four full grown men's bodies uh, overnight. So why would they do this? Why would they take any risk at all? Saul was in this situation because he had been rejected as the Lord's anointed. So why, why take any risk for this man? You see, the people of Jabesh Gilead had a very specific memory of Saul. In fact, if we look all the way back to chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, Saul's first act as the anointed king of Israel was to emancipate the people of Jabesh Gilead from under the boot hill of a sadistic warlord named Nahash the Ammonite. Um, they were isolated and defenseless, and Nahash had basically said, you have two choices. I can wipe you off the face of the earth, or you can surrender to me, but then I get to gouge out the right eye of everyone here as a constant reminder of your shame. So this is not a really great choice to be left with. And the elders of Jabesh Gilead asked if they could have some time to think about it. And they sent word out. And when Saul, when word of this reached Saul, rather, Scripture says that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and his anger was greatly kindled. And he was coming in from plowing the field, so he had these pair of oxen and a plow, and he unhooks the plow, and he immediately kills his oxen, cuts them into little pieces, and sends them to all the families and tribes of Israel, all over Judah. And he says... Any of you who don't show up tomorrow to march with me to Jabesh, I'm going to do this to all of your livestock. <laughs> and so he manages to muster overnight a last-minute militia of over 300,000 men. And they march to Jabesh Gilead, and first thing in the morning, they completely decimate Nahash the Ammonite and his army. And so for the people of Jabesh Gilead, whatever Saul has become in the meantime, they remember when he was filled with the Spirit of the Lord and acted valiantly on behalf of his people. And so no one is going to dishonor this vessel of the Lord's Spirit or this instrument of his deliverance on their watch. So they don't even think twice about taking this great risk in order to reclaim his honor because as far as they're concerned, the honor of the Lord's King is tied together with the honor of the Lord. And so we see that people who fear the Lord are filled with an appropriate jealousy for the Lord's honor. They simply cannot get comfortable in the presence of blasphemy, and they desire zealously to see the Lord given his glorious due. And this finally brings us back to David. Uh, this is, after all, a sermon series about David. Um, and at this point, there is an interesting twist in the story. Uh, it's the third day now after 
Saul has been killed. And uh, David has been in the, he's in the city of Ziklag. It's about 80-mile journey from Mount Gilboa, where Saul and Jonathan have died. Um, and a messenger shows up to tell him of the details of what had happened. And so we can assume it's on the third day. It's not necessarily three full days. It's on the third day. This messenger arrives from 80 miles away. We can conclude that he is pretty determined to be the first one to arrive with news of the battle to David. And he shows up carrying the crown of Saul and his armband. And he tells David that Saul and Jonathan are dead. So think about what that means for David. The royal effects have just been dropped in his lap, along with the knowledge that Saul and his heir are dead. Right? And this, this is a Malachite messenger. He thinks he's just handed the kingship over to David, wrapped in a bow. And surely he's hoping that there's something in it for himself. But he had made a slight miscalculation. Because David was no ordinary man with no ordinary ambition for the throne. David considers himself God's humble servant. And so once again, just like before when David has the opportunity to kill Saul in the cave, David finds himself in perfect position to take matters into his own hands and to seize the throne once and for all. But instead, he opts to patiently wait on the Lord to reveal his will and his timing. He chooses to continue on the hard path of not my will be done, but yours. And at great cost to himself and to his own ambition, David chooses obedience over expedience. And so, instead of the cheers and high fives that the Amalekite messenger was expecting, he sees this, which is our verses from 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Now it makes sense that David would mourn for Jonathan. They were best friends after all. And it makes sense that David would mourn for the army and for the house of Israel because he shared their fate in many ways. But he mourns and weeps and fasts for Saul, it says first. You know, and again, it makes sense for the people of Jabesh Gilead, uh, who had some sense of loyalty to Saul. But remember, Saul has been relentless in his opposition of David. How then is David moved to mourn this man's loss? Well, with the many psalms as evidence, we know that along this journey, David has been practicing bringing his grief and his anger over Saul's injustices against him to the just judge. Right? He, uh, he's not allowed Saul's hatred for him to shape his opinion of Saul or his behavior towards Saul. But rather, like Jesus would do on the cross a thousand years later, he's able to say, Father, forgive him, for he knows not what he does. You know, and perhaps David identifies with Saul even more 
And he thinks to himself, there but for the grace of God go I. Right? He recognizes that left to his own devices, he's no more deserving of the Lord's favor than Saul is. And so he genuinely mourns Saul's death and continues patiently waiting on the Lord. And in this, David reveals himself to be the true archetype, right, for God's true king. For years later, we know that Jesus would, would express many of the same things, right? He would uh, submit himself patiently and humbly to the will of the Father, and in so doing, accomplish the redemption of God's people forever. The Apostle Paul tells us in, in Philippians 2 that Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or to be clutched onto, but rather that he willingly gave it up, that he let his rightful kingship slip through his fingers as he submitted himself to the will of the Father for his glory and for the good of the whole world, humbling himself even to death on a cross. It's this character that we see reflected in David that makes David so special. But this Jesus, this is the Lord that we fear. This is the Lord that we love and honor and revere. And when we do, we become more like him. We become more steadfast. We become more courageous. Little by little, we become more jealous for his honor we become more patient in trusting the Lord for all things in his timing. And by his power, one day, when we see him face to face, we will truly be like him. We pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your word. By it is your servant warned, and in keeping it, there is great reward. Holy Spirit, take this word and plant it deep into our hearts. Make us more like Jesus, Lord, by your power. Make us people who are steadfast, who are courageous, who are jealous for your honor, and who patiently wait on your leading. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.